Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, it's our pleasure to present the sensational Ruta Lee. She's an actress, dancer, a Hollywood legend, and icon. You've seen her starring in such films as Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Funny Face, one of my personal favorites, Witness for the Prosecution. A little birdie told me that you're preparing to share your stories in a memoir. And I've heard it's called Consider Your Ass Kissed. <laughs> Is that true? Your little birdie has a very good loud mouth, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, and I, I tell you the title, I have to explain a little bit, <laughs> but it comes with no apologies because I am so sincerely grateful to anybody in this life that has ever turned the button on a television set to something that I'm doing, has gone to the movies to see me, has come to the theater to see me, and has supported my charity. And now if they're buying the book, what can I do but give the ultimate compliment and say from the bottom of my bottom and also from the bottom of my heart, consider your darling ass kiss. <laughs> And I'm I'm so grateful, you know. I my whole life has been wonderful because people somehow down the long line have cared or have listened or have helped, uh, you know, when I needed help. And uh, so I'm I'm so happy. And thank you for sharing your audience with me. Oh, it's a pleasure, a big pleasure. And uh, let me ask you about that. You know, it's considered by some. A uh, kind of insult to say, oh, he's an ass kisser. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. I'm sorry that it has that negative response, but the way I say it and the way I mean it is I can't imagine what else I could do besides kiss your bottom <laughs> to let you know how much I love you. You know, it's it's just great. I've I've been a so-called do-gooder all of my adult life. I think I was when I was a child, too. You know, I, I, I think uh, maybe I had an epiphany when I was uh, two or three years old that I wanted to hug everybody and give them a kiss and tell them hello and make them smile and, and all of that ever since I was a child. And um, so I wound up heading up uh, with Debbie Reynolds, God bless her, for some 50 years a very major charity in Hollywood, the Thalians, which was Hollywood for mental health, which in some ways made a lot of people smile, thinking actors are going to tell other people how to live their lives. But we we raised funds for mental health and uh, do a little good along the way, shining a spotlight, a Hollywood Klieg light into the dark abyss of mental illness and hopefully that light of healing because there there can't be I don't think anything much worse than being in that deep hole of depression all the time anyway I think that that's probably what has kept me going and kept me loving the work that I do and show business has provided the wherewithal the celebrity and the money to do what I need to do just a moment ago, you mentioned Debbie Reynolds, and wow, what a an iconic person. 
what was she like when you were eyeball to eyeball with her? Just just the two of you. Well, I call her my sister, not not in blood or birth, but by choice, and certainly my sister in charity. Debbie was one of the founders of the Thalians, and she devoted her life to it. And isn't it amazing, Paul, that she who devoted her life to mental health had a daughter who was mentally ill and who had bipolarism and therefore was always a problem. And she became a problem long before anybody knew what bipolar even meant. Hmm. But yet she still lived all of her life through it. Now, I've got to tell you, she was a hoot, especially if she had a couple of glasses of wine in her. (laughs) She really loved her wine, and she loved to laugh and talk and entertain. And she taught me a great deal about charity with a very simple explanation of Ruta. You can ask anybody in this world for anything you want, as long as it isn't for you, as long as it's for somebody else that you're doing the good. And boy, that has stood me in good stead. Hmm. And I miss, I miss her terribly. She, um, uh, she's gone almost two years. Well, it is two years. And uh, I, I, I can't quite, the world is just not quite as bright or as pretty. You know, a, a Cleed light went out and the world dimmed just a little bit when Debbie passed. But how beautiful a passing it was in that it was peaceful, it wasn't painful. She was going to meet her daughter. I uh, sang at her funeral. Her son asked me to to sing at, at her funeral and her conductor, Joey Singer, played the guitar that she used in... Um, the singing nun, and I, I sang at Forest Lawn when she and her daughter were were laid to rest in the most beautiful area with the beautiful statuary of, of, of Mary and Martha. I'm choking up thinking about it. And then her son, God bless him, Todd, did several months later the most gorgeous memorial for Debbie and Carrie at Forest Lawn in, I don't know what they call those big auditoriums. It's like a gorgeous upstairs, downstairs theater, you know, for 2,000 people or so. And it um, that's where he did a, a wonderful song and dance and choral tribute to his mom and his sister that was absolutely stunning. And, uh, I mean, Ziegfeld could not have produced a better show honoring his mother and his sister. He even had E2-D2 come waddling out on stage, you know, the little the little robot, and, and wave goodbye and give Todd a kiss. I mean, uh, I may start crying in a minute. Mm. <laughs> it was gorgeous, just gorgeous. And, and I, I fortunately was asked to sing for Debbie there, and I did her favorite songs because she had said to me, you're going to like this, Paul, I did a a medley of some songs for our best, our mutual best girlfriends, her high school girlfriend, later in life girlfriend for me, Paula Kent Meehan, who was the founder of Redken, you know, the Redken products. 
Oh, yeah. And she sold out to L'Oreal for billions of dollars. And at her funeral, I did a medley of songs. And Debbie, who was sitting in the front row and never goes to funerals, but she came to this one. She went to her own, of course. She uh, she said to me, Ruta, if I go before you do, I want you to do that same thing for me. And I can't tell you how happy and satisfying and proud it made me to fulfill her wish at her last wonderful wave goodbye. Hmm. I didn't mean to get maudlin. But no, no, it's okay. I, I appreciate it. I smile you. through the whole thing, though, because she was just such a fun dish of a girl. On the note of girls or ladies, you've had some great friends that also go through this incredible thing called show business, and we could go through the list, you know, a, a, a lot of them. But would you say that of the iconic ladies, it's like a sisterhood? Yes, and two stand out in my mind, totally. One, of course, is Phyllis Diller. I was so happy to have her as a bestie. You know, she was just one of those people. And, uh, I mean, she filled my life with so much glee. And there was another girl who, she was not a wine drinker. She was a martini drinker. And I think she's the one that taught me to love martinis. She liked gin, however, and I liked vodka. However, the other one that filled my life with great joy, and I worked with her and for her a lot, was the one and only Lucy. Ah. And Lucy's daughter, little Lucy Arnaz, actually, and you know, her name is Desiree. Isn't that great? Mm. Little Lucy is known as Desiree. She put together a bunch of Lucy's scarves, because Lucy always wore them to tie her hair back or wrap her head in or whatever. And I am always so happy to have been given a bunch of those scarves. And every time I put one on, I feel Lucy wrapping my shoulders, you know, and, and or my head with her love and warmth. And she was a very interesting lady, you know. I've got to tell you, Paul, she, on the set, she was tough as nails, brooked no foolishness from anybody, even though she was a, a great comedian. She wasn't funny in person, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. She was quite, quite uh, straightforward, serious, and, and, uh, but fabulous on the set, and paid me one of the great compliments I ever got when she said in print that Rudely was not only a great broad, she was also a most professional performer. And I think that's why I worked for her often. I knew how to hit my marks. I knew how to stay out of the, the frame if somebody was doing a line that needed a laugh. And um, God, I really had some wonderful shows. I had the joy of going up into um, New York to her home state and hometown to be the guest star at the big Lucy uh, week or weekend that they do. It was so nice because they had several of the, the shows that I had done for Lucy and, and with her. And uh, I got to talk to people that came from all over the world. They gather from 
weird places, you know. I mean, you wouldn't expect people from Japan to be coming in for Lucy Week, but they do, and it's just amazing, and Italians and French people and, of course, all Americans. But uh, it was a great experience to relive some of my experiences with Lucy and uh, how we worked together and how I talked her into being the honoree for the Thalians one year, which is a subject that I will get into if we can. She would do, and she also co-chaired with me, honorary chaired, uh, the event for the City of Hope that I was doing. So she was a good friend, and she thought I was a great broad. Boy, did I think she was a great broad. She had the crown. She was the queen of them all, the best. On the note of the Thalians, you just said, uh, if we can get into that, and I was actually hoping that we would. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Debbie Reynolds and I have been the head mothers of it with their roles we exchanged, either president or chairman of the board. Debbie was one of the founding members. The first president was Hugh O'Brien. The second was Margaret Whiting, the wonderful singer. Then came Donald O'Connor, and then came Debbie Reynolds. And then, let's put it this way, it was a group of young Hollywood people and not just actors and performers, but people in allied fields of young agents, young producers, young writers, uh, directors, anybody in show business who um, used to hang out together. And they got tired of being called pot-smoking, hard-drinking, sex-minded idiots that had nothing to contribute to society and said, you know, we get together and hang around the piano and sing and entertain each other. Why don't we sell tickets to these things and make some money for a charity? So they all thought that was a grand idea. And two of the foremost members, and when I say foremost, they certainly were breastwise foremost, Jane Mansfield and Mamie Van Doren. (laughs) were sent out to look for a good charity that needed backing. They came back from the meeting saying, well, all the good diseases that we know about are gone, like cancer and heart and lung. And they said, we found a doctor that deals with emotionally disturbed children, which he described as like a rotting apple in a barrel, that it will infect the whole barrel or the whole community if it's not taken care of. So the Thalians adopted the problem of the emotionally disturbed child. And for some 18 years, we did shows honoring the greatest stars that were available who dazzled us not only by their performances on screen, large or small, or radio or recording studios, but who dazzled us with their performances as philanthropists. And we honored everybody. When I say honored, we had them as the focus of an evening, a big, huge extravaganza ball, a black tie event. We honored everybody from from Frank Sinatra through Whoopi Goldberg, through Angela Lansbury, through God, anybody, Clint Eastwood. We honored everybody like this, and they were kind enough to come and lend their presence, and because of them, the people who worshipped at their shrine performance came and performed for us for free. And 
gratis. You know, I'm so proud of actors because they're the only people who can give away and do give away to every good cause the only thing they've got to sell, which is their talent. We built the clinic after 18 years for a different kind of venue, not just the emotionally disturbed child, but we went from pediatric to geriatric care in our first building that went into the the Thalians Community Mental Health Center at Cedars-Sinai, and it was the first building at Cedars-Sinai. And for some 50 years, we raised millions and millions of dollars for mental health by doing these fabulous, spectacular shows. Then we decided that we needed to change our focus. And we were neglecting the beautiful young men and women who go to war for us. And our returning vets come back and sometimes fall through the cracks when it comes to care when they return. So we joined up with UCLA and Operation Mend. Operation Mend heals the broken bodies the blown-off limbs, the the scarred faces of our beautiful young men and women, our veterans, and we heal the minds, the hearts, and the spirits of these broken men and women. And I think we're doing an incredible job, and I'm very, very proud that this young group that started out almost 60 years ago are still thriving and doing whatever we can. We don't do the great big huge shows anymore because they're too expensive. No matter what hotel you go to and how beautifully they do it, it is so expensive that you wind up doing a party uh, and raising very little in the long run after paying all the bills Hmm. to give to the charity. So now we do smaller events and they're incredibly successful as well. And I would hope that your listeners, my dear Paul, would be kind enough to go to their computers and look up Thalians, T-H-A-L-I-A-N-S. By the way, Thalia was a Greek muse who loved comedy and who took care of the straying lambs. So it seemed like a very appropriate title for a group of showbiz people, the Thalians.org. And you can read all about what we do, how we do it, and who helps us along the way. And if you have a nickel to contribute, or you have 500000 to contribute, we would be very, very happy to receive it, and you'll receive honors in lovely ways. And again, that's Thalians.org, T-H-A-L-I-A-N-S, Thalians.org. Is it true that you auditioned for the role of Ginger in Gilligan's Island? (laughs) Oh, boy. That's when I could have used a little help from Mamie Van Dorn and Jane Mansfield. Yes, I did. And I remember this audition very well. I don't remember what I did or said. I probably read from the script. But I went in wearing a beautiful, sexy, black beaded gown that had been done for me by the very world-famous Nolan Miller. And he had, had... glued me into this grass and obviously padded the bosom a little bit because I have absolutely nothing when it comes to bosom. I, in fact, I, I once on the air on, uh, on, 
I'm laughing when I'm thinking about it uh, on <laughs> Hollywood Squares that I used to regular on, was asked a question by Peter Marshall about Dolly Parton's breast size, and I said, don't ask me. I have a tattoo on my chest that says, in case of rape, this side up. Oh. And, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, back to my story. <laughs> back to my story. So I went in looking, I thought, pretty terrific. You know, hair piled up the whole thing and did my lines. But clearly, Tina Louise's cleavage was a hell of a lot better than mine. And she got the role. And I was just at an event at the Hollywood Museum here that honored Don Wells, who was a long-time friend, who, of course, played uh, Marianne. And uh, what a darling girl. You should you should have her as a guest sometime. She's very, very delicious and has funny stories to tell. And uh, it was so nice to be with her. I haven't seen her for a while. We usually either followed each other or headed off each other in theaters that we were playing, either simultaneously or one after another. But what a, what a great gal and what a fun show. And, of course, Sherwood Schwartz, whom Hal Cantor, who was a great Hollywood writer uh, once referred to Sherwood Schwartz, who is the producer of the show, as Robin Hood's rabbi. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) It occurs to me, (laughs) at the beginning of the interview, I think you might have broken a record. I don't know if anybody has said, uh, although I started it, I suppose, has has anyone said the word ass one minute into the interview? <laughs> and something Well, I sort of look at it this way. I don't I don't apologize for the title because I sincerely mean consider your ass kissed. <laughs> and and the reason that I I dared to use it was that my very very dear friend George Pinocchio, who is the ABC Hollywood reporter, you know, he does all the red carpets and Academy Awards and things, is a good friend. And he said, you know, you use that expression all the time at every charitable event, at every Thalian event, at everything you do for the Heart Fund or, uh, you know, for whoever. You always say to the audience who are there and have bought a ticket or have contributed mightily, consider your darling ass kissed. Well, I mean that. I mean it sincerely. And all I can do is say, listen, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on an ass. If it was good enough for him, it's good enough for me. (laughs) Humor is so important, isn't it? (laughs) Well, it saved my life. Hmm. It's saving it more than ever right now, because I'll, I'll share with you, if you don't mind, that my gorgeous husband, Weblo, who was at one time executive vice president of McDonald's, who was president of Bonanza, the steakhouses nationwide, had a stroke two years ago that left him fine physically, gorgeous as ever, but mentally out to lunch forever and ever. He is suffering from dementia and I'm suffering from his dementia. And if there's one thing it takes, and I'm sure some of your listeners are well acquainted with this, it takes an extraordinary amount of patience to be a caregiver to someone who is having mental problems. It's one thing when you have 
a broken arm or a leg or, or you have pneumonia. But when the brain is not operating and words might, some words might be meaningless to that person. On the other hand, they take on a different meaning. Wow. That is a test of patience. And the only thing that's helping me with my great lack of patience is my extraordinary sense of humor, hmm. which God really blessed me with that. Tremendous energy and a wild sense of humor, a, a, a really irreverent sense of humor, which um, I think has helped me all along. And I can find humor in almost every situation, including what I'm going through with my beautiful husband. On the note of the book, what has it been like to reminisce and go back and, and write the story of your life? Tell us a little bit about what that experience has been for you. Well, let me tell you this. Ernest Hemingway, I'm not. I can't sit down and write a book. I have been writing this bloody thing for some 10 years now. Only when I say writing, only because I'm recounting tales a little bit at a time of stuff that happened in my life. And that's, most of that stuff is amusing and fun. And a wonderful young man who is a PR man and was working for one of the television stations that I was making a guest appearance on in Texas said, you know, Ruta, I have followed you like crazy and I know some of your life and you have got to put all of this down. I mean, I laugh at everything that you're telling me about people and, and Frank Sinatra and, and uh, you know, Bing Crosby and different people like that. And you've got to put it in a book. And I finally said, you know, I've heard this from so many people that maybe I just felt like it would be self-aggrandizement to do a book about Ruta Lee, and with the generations having changed now, they'll say, Ruta Lee, what's a Ruta Lee? You know, are there still anybody, is there still anybody left alive old enough to know who I am or give a damn? And I'm finding out that, yes, there are enough people out there who were interested. So he made a point of flying out from Texas, and every... I don't know, month two or three, we would get together and spend a weekend together, and he would record everything that I said. And Paul, this was funny, because on the recordings, it would be, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom now, that would get recorded. Every telephone call would get <laughs> recorded. All the dogs barking would get recorded. The parrot screaming would get recorded. And that all got typed up, and I said, holy mackerel, we have got to edit this son of a gun. <laughs> But every time I go to edit, all I do is add more, you know. And by the time we add the pictures, which are always my favorite thing in any book to go go to first, it's going to be the size of a bloody telephone book, you know. But anyway, it's sort of done. I've got to uh, edit a couple of things. We're interviewing and talking with people that might be interested in publishing and uh, kind of feeling out who's best for us and who's best for the, the publisher. And I hope to have it out and ready for next year sometime. And hopefully you'll have me back on again so we can talk about book, book, book the next time. <laughs> I hope so. Absolutely. I hope you'll join us again. Do you have a few more minutes? Of course I do. Oh. For you, anytime. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. You know, there was a name that you mentioned that immediately it perked my interest, and and I'll tell you why. It was a couple, I don't know, it might have been a couple months ago, I was at this hotel bar in Atlanta, and 
I thought, that couldn't be. Oh my, is that Clint Eastwood? And there's few pe- a few people that are like, wow, they're like these living legends of Hollywood. And I'm hoping you can tell us, because I didn't, I didn't have the guts to go up to him, <laughs> but what is Clint Eastwood like? Very much like the rather stoic, quiet people that he plays. He doesn't have to reach very far to do some of those, although he is a wonderful actor and can do anything. But most of it stems from what he really is. He's rather shy, a little bit introverted about things, which is hard to to imagine. But I know him from way back when, before he was Clint Eastwood, the movie star. He was Clint Eastwood, the television star on Rawhide is when I first met him and his first wife, Maggie. And we have been friends ever since, but the SOB never hired me for one of his movies, which really ticks me off. (laughs) But that's okay. I tried for 20 years to get Clint to be my honoree at the Thalians. And it was always, no, he was going to be in Africa, or no, he was going to be in Belgium, or no, he was going to be in New Orleans, or no, you know, that he couldn't, and blah, 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 blah. And finally, one day, I got him on the phone, and I said, listen, you and I share practically a birthday. I'm on the 30th of May. You're on the 31st of May. Come on, give me a great, big, huge present and tell me that you'll be my honoree this coming year in at the Thalians. And he said, why don't you give me a birthday present and tell me that I don't have to come? You see how reticent he was. <laughs> but I talked him into it, and he came, and he was the most gracious, divine guy. I mean, let's face it, at his age and as kind of older type person that he is, he's still frigging sexy, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and he was he just couldn't have been more wonderful. So that's, you know, what I can say about him. And you probably should have approached him and he would have appreciated knowing that you cared. Now, you know. He's not exactly the Stanley stud that he used to be when he was doing all those spaghetti westerns and things, but he is a fabulous, wonderful guy with a great history and unfortunately not all that terrific when it comes to women. There have been a lot of very, very interesting ladies in his life that he's left brokenhearted, but um, who cares? I love him. Another name that you mentioned, a very iconic name, Frank Sinatra. Did he have a presence? Let me put it this way. I had never seen, I'm I'm going to tell you a story. Have we got time to listen to it? Absolutely. It's in the book, (laughs) but it'll be fun to read again. When I was a young girl around town, I got invited by one of the great hosts in in Hollywood, Scotty Rubin, to see Frank Sinatra in the Macombo, at the Macombo. 
Television had taken over the world. Nightclubs were doing very, very badly. Mary Morrison, who owned the Mocambo, called on Frank Sinatra, and he said, okay, I'll come and play for a week, and then maybe Dean or Vic Damone, maybe Sammy Davis. We'll get everybody to come in and play for a week and see if we can't stir up some new hot business for the Macambo, which was, along with Ciro's, the premier Hollywood night spot. So I was invited to come to Frank Sinatra's opening night. And my host had the major table of 10 or 12 people, I can't remember, directly under Frank Sinatra, who was standing on a small dais because the nightclub stage, and nightclub stages are really very small, was filled with his orchestra, filled to capacity. And so some of the audience was actually sitting behind Frank Sinatra because of the way he was placed out into the house on that dais. And I watched Frank Sinatra, and I'm sure you and all of your audience will agree that nobody, but nobody in this world will ever be, ever was or will ever be like Frank Sinatra live on stage. He was totally mesmerizing. Something about the way he presented a song was just awesome. And I, of course, had never seen him when all the girls were screaming and yelling after him in New York. I was too young for that. But I was a buyer and listener of all of his beautiful, unrequited love songs, beautiful Come Swing Along With Me albums, nobody like Frank. Well, I sat there with my mouth hanging open, totally mesmerized. And a note came around to my host saying, would you mind bringing Miss Lee around? I'd like to meet her table so-and-so. So my host took me around, and the man said, hello. My name is Arthur Hornblow, Jr., and I am producing a movie called Witness for the Prosecution, and I'd like you to come in and meet Billy Wilder whenever you can, because I've just, because I'm sitting behind Frank Sinatra, I've just given you a very unique screen test. I watched you watch Frank Sinatra, and I think you would be a very good love interest for Tyrone Power in my movie. Will you come in and meet Billy Wilder? And I said, it's tomorrow too soon. (laughs) And I went in, they put me on camera, and Marlena Dietrich saw the rushes that night, and she said, no, 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 Nick Nine, no blondes, no, no, forget it. I became a brunette overnight, (laughs) and that's how I got my lovely little role as Tyrone Power's secret girlfriend and witness for the prosecution. Now, add to the story, fade out, fade in. It's like a year or two later. We all know that Frank Sinatra loved nothing more than having people into the house for a big Italian dinner and then let's screen a new movie. The movie that they screened that night, at which Howard Koch, producer friend of mine and director that I'd worked for, was now his partner, was attending. And what do they screen but witness for the prosecution? And Frank says to to Howie, Howard, you know, I've been watching this Ruta Lee chick a lot on television. Uh, what do you think? Should we put her in one of our upcoming movies? That's how I got to be the leading lady to Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, Peter Lawford, Joey Bishop, and the Crosby Boys in Sergeant 3. Now, is that a Hollywood story that is unbelievable? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So that's Frank Sinatra. Yes, he was fabulous. He was mesmerizing. 
He was probably the most generous human being I've ever known in my life. Quietly so. No big hoopla about what he did. He he provided a living for so many people in our business that most people didn't know about. And yes, he would be quick to anger. He's Italian. And he never got angry at fans who came to say hello, but he got angry at fans who came over when he was having a drink and held hand down from having a drink or interrupted dinner to give their long story about their Aunt Sadie used to go with his uh, mother's friend or something, you know. He would really get pissed off about that sort of thing. But all in all, I, I have nothing but the kindest, most loving things to say. He got mad at me one time hmm. when he misinterpreted something that had been written, which happens a lot, you know, misinterpretations. And I, I thought he was furious with me, wouldn't talk to me. For the longest time, I sent long letters, which he would not answer. And then I walked into a club one day, uh, Pips in Hollywood, and there was Frank at the bar. And I thought, oh, Christ, he's going to hit me with something. You know, he's he's so angry. And he would not listen to anything. And as I walked in, he looked over at me and said, hey, Loudy, come here. Put his arms around me, gave me a great big hug. Loudy was the name that Dean Martin had dubbed me with. He said... God didn't give Ruta a pair of breasts. He gave her a set of speakers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> great stories. I can't wait for the book. All of these will be in and a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to have you back. Oh, I hope so. It's such a pleasure to meet you. And how's the weather where you are? Well, here in the great state of Georgia, it's a summery day in October. <laughs> so, Are you getting your fall colors yet? Not quite. Not quite? A little. It's 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 peeking through. But yesterday I was I was sweating. It was so hot. It could have been July. Oh my. <laughs> I'm supposed to go to Texas next week for a benefit. What else is new? I'm doing another benefit. By the way, this is a very interesting group. It's called Helping uh, a Ranch Hand Rescue. And it's where they take maimed, injured, abandoned animals, heal them, even sometimes in case of horses or, or mules or something with prosthetic devices, and then bring in children who are mentally disturbed to heal with the animals. And it's amazing what a disturbed child will say to an injured animal that he will not say to a psychiatrist. Mm, wow. Isn't that interesting? Very. Uh, Ranch Hand Rescue in Texas. Ranch Hand Rescue. Uh-huh. I love the idea. I think it's just fabulous. And uh, so I'm going in there doing a, a benefit in Denton, Texas, which is sort of between Dallas and Fort Worth, my stomping grounds. And um, so this time I'm going to spend a little time in Denton. So I got to get my, my southern accent back out again, along with my cowboy boots. <laughs> my last question. What is the best thing about being Ruta Lee? I think that I'm eager to laugh, as I said, about everything. And I think for me, the best thing is that what little celebrity I may have I 
try very hard to put to good use. Oh, yes, I do appreciate theater tickets that are hard to come by because the the vendor might know me or or getting an airline seat when I'm in a hurry. You know, that, that kind of, that bit of celebrity or a table in a restaurant that's busy, that celebrity I, I will take advantage of sometimes too. But mostly it's all to be able to do something for somebody rather than need something from somebody. So that's the best part. And I'm grateful to God for the opportunity to have had the wherewithal and the drive to do stuff to help other people. I find that the best part of being Rudely. And hopefully, hopefully, I will be welcome into heaven because of it. And hopefully, Debbie is up there clearing the path for me. Well, Rudely, you have made my day. Thank you very much for joining us. You've made mine, and I thank you, and thank you for sharing your audience with me. And I look forward to you. And now, in closing, because I love you very much and appreciate what you're doing in life as well, consider your ass kissed. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. And back at you. God bless him. <laughs> thank you, my darlings. Have a good day. No, have a good life. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Until next time.